Lord, as we dig into Matthew 25, this parable of the talents, would you now send your spirit, Lord, to open our eyes that we could see, that you would open our ears so we could hear. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the message of this parable. And would you just give me grace to be faithful to your precious words here in this parable of the talents. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? That's one of the messages that comes through from this parable. Don't you long to hear those words? I think we all long to hear them, right, in, in many settings, but especially from the Lord. And it comes from today's parable. So we're going to talk about what does it look like to be ready, to be a faithful servant? Does it mean to be hardworking? What does it involve, being faithful? Well, Webster Dictionary defines faithful this way. The first meaning is steadfast in affection or allegiance loyal, as in a faithful friend. And then the second meaning is firm in adherence to promises or in observance of duty, conscientious, as in a faithful servant, a faithful employee. I want to tell you a story as we begin. This is a story about a young immigrant boy named George. He got a job as a kitchen worker in New York, and by age 25, he had worked his way up to be the manager of a hotel dining room. And by age 30, he had bought his own hotel in Philadelphia. And one stormy night, an elderly couple came to his hotel. They entered the lobby, and they asked for a room. But unfortunately, all the rooms were full. And all the hotels in the whole city were full. So George said, I can't send a fine couple like you out on a stormy night. Would you sleep in my room? Well, the couple hesitated, but George insisted. The next morning when the man paid his bill, he said, George, you're the kind of man that should be managing the best hotel in the United States. I'll build you one. Well, George smiled politely, you know, yeah, right, we'll see about that. More about George later. <laughs> All right, we're going to look at the context of this parable now. It's important for us to get the context and to know the audience that Jesus was speaking to before we dive in. So I want you to turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. We're going to start in the first couple of verses so we can see who the audience is. In verse 1, we read, Jesus left the temple and was going away. That should ring a bell. In the parable of the talents, we're going to hear that the master is going away, right? And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then from that point on, in Matthew 24, all the way through the end of Matthew 25, Jesus is doing just that. He's going to tell them the when and the how of the end of the age. 
So he began to tell them of God's judgment, his coming judgment, and the importance to be ready. What does it look like to be ready and faithful? So he goes on here, the next section, I'm not going to read all of these, but you can see in verses 3 through 14, he tells them that the signs of the close of the age, that there will be religious deception, war, natural disasters. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> um, persecution is also part of the list of troubles, but I want you to look at the precious promise that we see in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. All right, in verses 15 through 28, we see um, what's called the abomination of desolation. We've just heard about this final surge of evil, evil as we went through our sermon series in Daniel. And we heard about this abomination of desolation. Now, verses 29 through 31, Jesus is saying, he is going to come again, right? He's going to gather us to himself, and he's going to end the rebellion once and for all. Then in verses 32 through 35, there's going to be signs that the end is nearing, but we need to take heart and to know that Jesus' words are eternal. They are never going to fail. And then verses 36 through 51, he says, life is going to go on as normal, and most people will not even notice that sin is getting worse. Does that sound familiar in our culture? So what does it look like for us to be ready and faithful? Well, then Jesus goes on from here and he tells three parables. All right? And the one we're going to dive into deeply is the third one. So hang in there. We're still setting the context. All right? The first parable Jesus told about two servants, one that was wise and one that was foolish. He said, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. So the wise servant is the one who understood that weight of responsibility and he worked really hard knowing that he was going to give account. He was faithful, and he was expectantly waiting. The other foolish one, he thought it was time to throw a party and do whatever his sinful heart wanted to do because he thought, surely the master is not coming back soon. Well, that was a fatal decision that we learn in the end. We read here, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember that phrase because we're going to see it again in today's parable. All right, the second parable that Jesus tells is the parable of the ten virgins. Now, this is what we call our immediate context because it's right next to the parable that we have for today. And I want you to note especially verses 12 and 13. This is Matthew 25, verse 12 and 13. Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch Therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So no one knows when Jesus will return. So we need to be about doing his will. We need to be ready, be patiently watching. And Amy is going to wrap up our study with this parable next week, so this is just a teaser. That's all I'm going to say about it. So now we finally come to today's parable, 
And we're going to get to that in a minute, but I want you to jump over this parable and I want you to look down at verse 31 through 46 because this is the other bookend that surrounds our, our parable. After this parable, Jesus tells us more about the final judgment to come. And then following that, Matthew tells us about the events leading up to Jesus' betrayal, his death, his resurrection. Jesus is going to be going away. All right, This is the close of his earthly ministry. So this parable of the talents is set right before the end of Jesus' uh, life here on earth. So I want you to see that entire context. So these three parables together tell us how to rightly think about the return of King Jesus. And at first glance, these three parables seem really, really different. Because one, remember the first one, showed the foolishness of thinking that his coming is not going to be soon. And one shows the foolishness of thinking that he will come soon. And then the parable of the talents that we're going to study today shows us that it's important to be faithful no matter when Jesus comes back. All three of these parables teach that Jesus will come back and that when he does, we will give an account to him. He is our master. He is our judge. Will we be ready? Will we be foolish or indifferent or unbelieving? Or will we be faithful in our waiting and our watching? We're going to see that these parables contain a warning, as we saw two weeks ago. Do you remember Julia? When she spoke, she said this, How you live in light of the coming kingdom now determines what you experience at the end of the age. Okay, that's a common theme that we see in these parables. So now, here we are, the parable of the talents. So look back at verse uh, 14 of Matthew 25. All right. So we're going to look at the structure first. Matthew structures this parable in three scenes. In the preceding parable, Jesus talked about the importance of being ready, and now he's going to unpack it. He's going to unpack it to see what does readiness mean. So scene one. Verse 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey. Now this man is called master nine times in this parable. You might have recognized that as you, if you read it ahead of time. All right, he called his servants and he entrusted to them. Isn't that a beautiful word, right? He, like, like partners in business, he entrusted to them his property. Now that word is important for us to see. Property doesn't mean real estate. It means goods or possessions, and it's the same Greek word that's used to describe how women who had been healed by Jesus provided support for the disciples out of their means, okay? It's also the same word that Zacchaeus uses when he is transformed by Jesus, and he says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Same Greek word. So we see a comparison here between the kingdom of God and the man who goes away entrusting his property to his servants. The wise master wanted to see his assets put to work so that when he came back from his trip, he would have some financial gain. Now he says in verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. So what do we think of when we hear the word talents? I think of maybe the ability to play the piano or sing. 
Um, and of course, we have a show that's been on TV for something like 17 seasons now. It's called America's Got Talent. Well, that's not the kind of talents that we're talking about here. This word talent, and I think Sharice mentioned this back in her teaching, but it's a unit of weight, okay? It's a measurement of weight. It's a heavy amount. A Greek talent was 60 pounds. A Roman talent was 70 pounds. And so the value of the currency depended on whether it was 60 pounds of bronze or silver or gold, okay? So talent is actually a measure of weight. One talent of silver is about 6,000 days of work. All right, for a common laborer. It, talents of gold or silver were really a vast fortune. That is 20 years of salary. Okay, this is millions of dollars in today's money. This is riches beyond belief. So this master gave very generously. He gave abundantly. He gave lavishly to these servants. Now, it's not a reference when he says here that they were distributed according to his ability. It doesn't mean here that the master is giving them their abilities. He's giving them the cash, right? But he distributes it based on their ability, what they're going to do with what he gives them. And he is, it's also in keeping with their character. The most skilled or trustworthy servant was given the most. And this reflects a very wise master. Their unequal distribution shows us something about the heart of God as well. It highlights God's wisdom in knowing each of his servants' abilities or gifts, right? It also highlights his sovereignty, that he can do as he pleases with those gifts. And it also reflects his goodness. We deserve nothing, do we? These servants didn't deserve to have these talents given to them. You'll also notice that no instructions were given. The master wanted the servants to use their own initiative and creativity to do the best they could with the money that he had left to them, but he didn't want to bind them with specific instructions. And this was wise because after all, economic conditions change. So he didn't want to strap them with how to invest the money, but he left it up to them and their wisdom. Now we come to scene two, verses 16 through 18. Tells us what happened while he was away. It says, he who had received the five talents went at once. This means immediately. They didn't know how much time they had, so they, they left right away. And they traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. So they were trading, investing, there was no stock market at the time, so this probably involved the hard work of starting a business, maybe a fishing business, maybe they were hiring employees. But both of these servants doubled their investment. And now we see a contrast. Do you see that word? But, when you see that word, you know there's a contrast coming. He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, he avoided all risk by doing this. And this was not uncommon. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, we saw in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. This was a common practice. So he might have thought he would be the hero because he would be preserving the capital and the others might lose their money. But 
Even though he had no loss, he also had no gain, right? No possibility for gain. He would never earn a profit. Maybe you've known a friend or a relative who hid cash under a mattress. <laughs> it was very common back in the Great Depression. Well, a couple of years ago in Michigan, a man purchased a couch and an ottoman for his man cave for $70 from a Habitat for Humanity restore. And he said the ottoman always felt a bit odd, a little bit hard and uncomfortable. So he was curious about the, the weird stuffing that was in it. <laughs> and so he opened it up, and do you know what they found? $43,000 of cash. That's what the ottoman was stuffed with, all right? <laughs> Turns out that the furniture had been donated by his granddaughter, who didn't know that he paid for everything by cash, and that's where he kept his cash, was in the ottoman. So one of the morals from the story is, if you do that, tell your kids where you hide your money, right? <laughs> or at least write it down somewhere so you don't forget where you hid it. <laughs> okay. All right, so scene three, the master returns, all right? In verse 19, now after a long time, this indicated that his return could take longer than expected. The master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. This is a business term and we saw this used back in Matthew 18 in that parable on forgiveness. The master here is judging his servants' investment results. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This may sound familiar, as Jesus said this very same thing back in Matthew 13 that Dr. Jared unpacked for us in his introduction to our study on the parables. And then Jesus concludes, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So now we're gonna take a closer look at scene three by examining the three main characters and what we can learn. Since this is about the kingdom of God, the master is God, the king. So we're going to look at him first. This represents Jesus who entrusts all people with a portion of his resources, expecting them to be good stewards, 
Jesus is the great Lord, the master, the king, and the owner. He is our trustworthy master. He is the one who has been present. He is the one who is now absent. And he is the one who will come again. He is both a generous, gracious rewarder, but he is also a stern and perfectly just judge. More on this later when we look at the third servant's response. Well, he appoints his servants to take charge of his investments just as he has given gifts to us, right? He appoints for us to use our gifts for his glory until he returns. And his gifts vary, right? To some, more are given. To some, less is given. But all have some. There's wide varieties, too, in the kinds and degrees and measures of these gifts. He knows our abilities, too, and he entrusts resources to us accordingly. He expects us to be faithful just as he is faithful. Now, we see in verse 29 that just as God is free to distribute the talents, he is also free to redistribute those talents in any way he chooses because he is sovereign. Now we come to the good and faithful servants. These are the loyal subjects of the king, and their attitude is captured in the words of this old hymn. We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be, all that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. So these servants immediately invested what the master entrusted to them, and they got a return, they doubled it, they were industrious. They worked really hard. It wasn't just investing in the stock market, but they employed the master's resources shrewdly and wisely. These positive role models are honored for their faithfulness and for their effort. And they're given this hearty, well done, right? He commends their character and their diligence. The servant, he says, has been faithful over a little. Think about that. Was it really a little? When we talked about what a talent is, this was a huge sum of money, and yet the master thinks of, or he, you know, he speaks of it as being a little. You've been faithful over a little. What does that tell you about the master? He was super rich, wasn't he? Yeah, because this is just a little bit that he entrusted to them. And then he says, I will appoint you over much. Well, that indicates that the faithful servant will be rewarded with a position that will give him even more authority, more opportunity, more responsibility. Now, I thought this was pretty ironic. Maybe you think this too, because what were these servants doing? They were working really hard. They had doubled their investment, and then part of the reward is more work. But also, you notice it, delight, joy, right? He says, enter into the joy of your master. So there's more joy, more favor, and this joy is a shared joy. In Psalm 1611, the psalmist wrote, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with 
joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Yeah. Well, the faithful servants are rewarded, and that includes joy. So we see here another answer to what faithfulness looks like. It means serving God in such a way that we increase his joy, right? And then we are welcome to share in that joy. So we're not just to invest, not just the natural abilities that God gives us. It can be much more than that. It's more encompassing than that. This refers to the stewardship of all that God places in our lives, monetary, physical, spiritual, using all that he has given, all that he's entrusted to us to make a profit for the kingdom. A couple of weeks ago, Jenny led us through three parables in Luke 15. Do you remember the common reaction when the lost was found? Rejoicing, joy, right? And Jenny said, God is the one who rejoices when we repent and are found. Oh, sisters, make the most of the opportunities and the resources that God has given you. Invest your lives in sharing the good news of Jesus with those who are lost. Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. Now, I want you to note that the second servant receives the same approval as the first servant. Did you notice that phrase was the same? The actual amount of their profit was not as important as the fact that he doubled the amount of money that the master entrusted to him. The second servant, he could have been puffed up with pride because he had more than that third servant who only had one. Or he could have been depressed or jealous because he didn't get the five talents. But he didn't, all right? He just faithfully invested what was entrusted to him, and he set about at once to work. He was good and faithful. That refers to his character and his conduct. Now, remember George? Okay, George is our immigrant, right? A few years after offering that elderly man and his wife that room, he received a letter from the man recalling that stormy night. He asked George to come to New York, and he included a round-trip ticket for him to come. And when George arrived, his host took him to the corner of Fifth Avenue and 34th Street, where a magnificent new building stood. And he said to George, that is the hotel that I have built for you to manage. The man was William Waldorf Astor. And the hotel was the original Waldorf Astoria. The man's name was George Bolt, and he, was, he became its first manager. And under his leadership, this hotel went from being called Astor's Folly, it was losing money, to becoming a major success. And it earned $4.5 million in the first year. The year was 1893. In today's money, I googled it, that would be $133 billion. So he really invested well in that hotel, didn't he? He was a good and faithful servant. All right, back to the parable. <laughs> now, the tension has been building as Jesus has been telling this parable. At this point in the parable, both the previous servants have doubled their investments, 
what about the third? Here we see that huge contrast between the good servant and the bad servant. Wicked is contrasted with good, and slothful is contrasted with faithful. So Jesus gives a very detailed account here, a lot more details than of the first two servants. We hear about his actions, his motivations, even his attitudes, um, and his fate. Now, a rabbinic teaching of the time actually commended people to bury their treasure. So Jesus' audience here, the disciples, they would have been shocked by the outcome of this parable, right? The servant says, I was afraid. But do you think, was he really paralyzed with fear? Is that at the root? If that servant truly was afraid and believed his master was this bad, should he not have not, he should have not buried the talent in the ground, right? Because there it had no chance of earning anything. He should have at least deposited in the bank. So fear is not at the root here. At least that's what the text says because Jesus calls him wicked and slothful. This refers to those here who are not citizens of the kingdom of God, not God's people, the wicked, the unrighteous. This sin of slothfulness, laziness, was the ground here of his condemnation. What is his posture? Is he ashamed? He's not. He didn't even act in line with how he supposedly viewed his master. His explanation here is more of an excuse than a reason. It's a cover-up. He's angry, trying to justify his actions, and now he stands exposed for what he is, a wicked sloth. He's full of excuses for his apathetic and lazy behavior, and then he attempts to shift the blame. Where does he shift the blame? To the master, accusing him of being ruthless and severe, demanding, unethical, reaping profits, off the labor of others, enjoying a crop for which he had expended no labor. This is not true, but he has the audacity to unjustly accuse this merciful, generous master of being without mercy. We can infer here that he does not love his master. He doesn't trust his master. He maybe even hates his master. He might have even thrown his talent down here saying, here, take what's yours. He's very angry. So what do we know in contrast about our master? He is generous beyond measure. He's entrusted a fortune to his servants. And Jesus had declared earlier in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest right? Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am, what? Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the character of our master. Well, how does this sit with the master? How does it land on him? What is a servant given? Look at the contrast again. He gets no praise, he gets no more opportunities or responsibilities. What he has is taken away and given to the first servant. Because how long did he have his master's money? Do you remember? 
a long while, and he obviously had no intention of using it. He would have buried it in the ground again. But he has no, he here has no invitation to share in his master's joy, but he gets punishment instead. Now, this is a very hard, unpopular teaching in our day and in Jesus' day. I want you to notice the similarities. Do you remember when we read Matthew 24, verse 51? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see that same phrase here. Jesus often referred to hell with that term, outer darkness. And the word gnashing here denotes extreme anguish and utter despair of men consigned to eternal punishment in hell. Now, earlier in his ministry, after commending a Roman centurion for his faith, Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's Israel, the religious leaders, who thought they were assured a place at the table, they will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. So here we see more clearly that this third servant is an unbeliever, one who claimed to be a citizen of the kingdom or a son of the kingdom, who didn't bear any fruit in his life for Christ. And he will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but be cast into eternal hell. The mere possession of a talent is not evidence of salvation. If you examine the context, the verses immediately after this parable, it seems to answer the question, so then what does a good and faithful servant look like? Look at me starting in verse 31 of chapter 25. This describes the judgment to come. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So evidently there were disciples who were sick, in prison, all alone, or in great need because of their faithfulness in following Jesus. I want you to hear this carefully. The works that are described here are not good things that you do to earn salvation. Okay? Hear that clearly. No. Jesus is all you need for salvation. We do not add to his grace by working. But 
Works are the fruit that comes from the faith that we have, faith that we have in trusting Jesus. So the focus here is not on your level of performance or your productivity, but it's on faithfully and gratefully responding to your relationship with Jesus, caring for others in the name of Jesus. So I want to close with some applications. This parable of the talents is about the kingdom of heaven, right? So remember how we began. We looked at the big context. Jesus was warning his followers that his coming would be sudden, unexpected, and we are to be ready. Ready how? Faithfully working. Investing his good gifts of grace like the servants in this parable who were held to account as soon as the master returned from his journey. So Jesus will hold us, the church, accountable. So number one, are we stewarding our opportunities for the kingdom? Each one of us has been given an opportunity to help build the kingdom of heaven. Although our talents, abilities, and gifts are not the main point of the parable, our faithfulness in what we do with what God has given us is very much the issue at stake. Our faithful stewardship is evidence of our faith and our trust in our master, Jesus, who has saved us, and he's given to us everything that we have. So our work, again, hear this, is fruit that flows from faith. So be faithfully working while you watch and wait eagerly for the return of King Jesus. And number two, what does a good and faithful servant look like? So we are to be faithful, doing our best with every bit of what God has given us, but serving in the strength that he supplies our work is an overflow of God's grace in our lives. So this parable is not about being busy enough in our own strength and in our own wisdom. This is not about bettering ourselves through self-improvement. Okay, Make sure you hear that. We are not enough, but Jesus is, and we trust in him. He is better than we can imagine. And he is lavish in his generosity and his gracious gifts to us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is one of my favorite verses. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then the other one of my favorite verses is, and he is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So do you hear the connection? We don't work out of our own resources. We work out of the grace that God has given us. So we are stewards of our money, our time, our gifts. We're stewards of the gospel. So keep faithfully plotting. We're to be sharing the gospel with unbelievers, making disciples, sharing the gospel, knowing that it's a step of faith and we can't control all the aspects of our sharing, right? 
but keep taking steps in obedience. There is risk in investments of all kinds. We expend sweat, creativity, time, effort, and we have no guarantees of a good return. If your investment does bear fruit, it's due to God and not to you. We don't get to follow a set of steps for a guaranteed outcome, especially when we are sharing the gospel with someone, but we trust God. So perhaps like you, I have precious people in my life who I've invested in for many, many years, sowing gospel seeds, and in some, I am not seeing any fruit. I'm only seeing rejection of the gospel. But I was so encouraged last week to be like that persistent widow. What did she do? She kept going. She kept pleading boldly and humbly for mercy and for grace, right? I'm, I, I'm doing that. I'm pleading for salvation for those that I love so much, knowing that it's ultimately God is our only hope to bring them to a saving faith. So sisters, be faithfully working while you watch and wait eagerly for the return of King Jesus. Oh, may we be praised and rewarded for faithfully using what God has entrusted to us. Just as those servants invested their talents, they were praised for their faithfulness, we too will be judged by our faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4 tells us, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It is the Lord who judges. And then he goes on and he says, Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay, application three. Are you ready for the judgment to come. The Bible tells us that all of us will give an account to God for our lives. If you are here and you have not trusted in Jesus, I pray that Jesus' words of warning in this parable would be a wake-up call for you and that you will put your faith and trust in Jesus. And I would love to talk to you. Any of our leaders would love to talk with you if you have questions about what that means. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is serious. This is not a cozy fairy tale. We might not even think this is a precious picture, this parable, right? Talking about the wicked, slothful, worthless servant who failed to use the gift that God had given him for his servant. These kind of servants prove by their actions that they do not love him. They do not belong to him. They are not in the kingdom, and they will be punished by separation from God and from all things good. A main takeaway from this parable is that the unfaithful are punished, just as the faithful are rewarded. So this is a warning to us not to be complacent or lazy. So sisters, be faithfully working while you watch and wait 
eagerly waiting for the return of King Jesus. Titus 2, 11 through 14 tells us, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's why he has redeemed us. He's given us his grace and his gifts so we can be zealous for good works. An old preacher once put it this way, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill, laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord, take it all. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us back to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 bill for quarters. We go through life putting 25 cents here and 50 cents here. Listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of saying get lost. Go to a committee meeting. Give a cup of water to a shaky old resident in a nursing home. Usually, giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. Let's close in prayer. Oh, our good and generous Lord and Master, would you help us to be ready in season and out of season that we might say with Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which you, the Lord, the righteous judge, and master will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved your appearing oh may we be faithfully working while we watch and wait eagerly for your return king jesus amen